Welcome to the Emerald City Sportscast. Wilson, it is he throws deep downfield. It's going to be caught by Metcalf for the touchdown. Hosted by longtime Northwest sports journalist Dan Viennes. Here's the drive deep to left. He has done it again. Wow. Kyle Lewis, three games, three home runs. Mariners have a five-two. Brought to you by Hollywood and Vines Recording Studio. World-class audio recording right in the heart of the Woodenville Winery District. Wide receivers to either side. Russell takes the snap, drops back. He's going to throw down the middle. He's got a man. The ball is caught. Game over, Touchdown. The game is over. The Seahawks are going back to the Super Bowl. And now, broadcasting live from the Dan Cave Studios, here's your host, Dan Vienne. Welcome back in, everybody, to the Emerald City Sportscast. I am Dan Viennes. It is July 15th. 2021 and uh, we're going to talk baseball today but football's right around the corner the Seahawks open training camp in about two weeks and coming up Monday just a matter of days our big uh, live crossover podcast event at Aussies in Seattle there's the details on the screen Aussies in lower Queen Anne in Seattle legendary sports bar just about a block and a half away from the new climate pledge arena Bill Alfstad and Keith Myers of the Seahawks Playbook Podcast are going to join me for a combined live stream podcast uh, training camp preview, which we will then post on these podcast platforms if you listen to the show after the fact. We will also be joined by Corbin Smith of Seahawk Maven and SI.com and the Locked on Seahawks podcast. So it's going to be about 3 to 6 o'clock, sort of a marathon show on Monday during happy hour at Aussie, so lots of great food and drink specials, and we have a lot of cool stuff to give away. I'm giving away my preseason Seahawks tickets to the Charger game. We're giving away five $50 fanatics.com gift cards so you can get all the merch you want. And yesterday, uh, my boss just chipped in a $200 gift card to El Gaucho, the El Gaucho of your choice. But if you come to Bellevue, you can see me, and we can chat about the Seahawks or Mariners. So that is coming up. On Monday. Today, though, we're going to talk baseball. The Mariners had their draft 20 rounds this year after the uh, extremely abbreviated last uh, draft of last year during the pandemic. Um, back to 20 rounds this year. Not quite back to what it used to be, but uh, still a lot more substantial. And who better to help me break it all down than Jason Churchill of ProspectInsider.com, founded that website. And then, of course, the Baseball Things podcast on uh, available on Patreon. Jason joins me now. How you doing, my friend? Hey, it's good to talk to you, Dan. It's good to hear your voice. It's been a little while. It has been. Yeah, we talked before the season, and uh, a lot has happened since then. We didn't. Uh, I'll start with this. We're going to focus mostly on the draft, but last time we talked, we didn't really know what the roster was going to look like. We still, mm-hmm. at the time, I I'm not even sure if they'd signed James Paxton yet. I can't recall if they had or not. Um, and so we were still unsure as to whether they were going to add to the roster. And we talked about some general expectations of what you thought we were going to see from the prospects. Where do you now at the halfway point, not technically, but at the all-star break, how do you feel about where the team's at today? I think in some ways there, it's kind of funny. I fall on both sides a little bit. I think there are ways to view this as 
they're ahead of schedule, so to speak. And you obviously had starting to win loss column there. Um, I, I thought the, probably the upside when the season started for me just before Paxton was signed, I thought the upside for this team was about 500, give or take a couple of games. It's a long season. You just never know, you know, but I thought 80 to 83 wins was like the very best. And maybe that still is the case, but it looks like they've put themselves uh, themselves in a position to maybe add incrementally here this month and, and turn out to, to be an 85, 86, 87 with team. I think that's the upside now. Um, whether that's good enough to get into the playoffs, uh, probably not. We'll have to wait and see. But then I think on the other side, it, it, there's mixed results. And and we're going to see Kalnick again, and we're certainly seeing Raleigh. But I, I think folks wanted to see, and when I say folks, I mean the Mariners themselves, the Scott Services of the world, Jared DeHart, Tim Laker, uh, uh, Jerry DePoto, certainly the front office folks, wanted to see a little bit more from uh, from certain young players. I, I think the J.P. Crawford development is huge for yeah. this team. I think some disappointments. Uh, Shedlong wasn't ready to go uh, when they hoped that he was. Now, he's had his moments as well. Uh, Dylan Moore hasn't produced. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was started to hit, then got hurt, and he's been back a little while, still not hitting for average. So, uh, so now you have to start thinking about second base for the future, both now and for the future. Like, what are you going to do there? Is Shedlong an answer? Is Dylan Moore an answer? Do you have to go out and get somebody else? I lean toward the, uh, the latter there, certainly. Yeah. Uh, and obviously Evan White at first base. The, the season has not gone. That's a disappointment. The season has not gone very well. And to have, you know, to be able to kind of split that down the middle, the JP thing positive, Logan Gilbert so far positive, uh, Jake Fraley kind of came out of nowhere. I don't think anybody yeah. was expecting that from him, and he's shown some consistency now, so that's been fun. Um, Ty France, I think, has been pretty much what everybody thought that he would be. Um but then there are just as many disappointments. So while overall you can't go, oh, none of their young players are doing what they hoped or all of them are doing what they're hoped, they're kind of stuck in the middle there. And it's kind of funny that if it was 5 out of 10, if it was 50%, you know, if that's where it is now, and it kind of seems that it is, if you made that 60% or 65%, where would this team actually be right now? What if you had yeah. a viable first base option out of Evan White and Ty France was more of the the DH and the filling guy to get his a bat six or seven days a week? You'd have another bat in your lineup, and that's one of the things that they're missing right now. So, uh, you know, and the same thing on the pitching side. I mean, Justice Sheffield, full step backwards, Ooh. maybe two. Yeah. Uh, Justin Dunn, I think, took a step forward forward in stuff, but the performance isn't really all that different. And now he's obviously hurt. So injury has been a big part of it, but uh, yeah, I think I'm kind of in the middle. I I think it's gone well in some ways. Some things haven't worked out. And and to be honest with you coming out of the break here, the thing I'm taking from it uh, that, that may be the most meaningful is it's clear Scott service and that field staff know what they're doing because it's very difficult to keep a bunch of young players interested if you and the leadership, uh, the player leadership, doesn't know what they're doing, I think they've proven that they do, and I do think that's a big deal moving forward. Yeah, it's it's an interesting point to make because I I think you know there's still there's still voices out there who think that's where change should be made, that things aren't mm-hmm. good enough or where they want them to be. But I, but I think for the most part, people that understand 
what's happening, uh, recognize that. And I think we've gotten to the point, I think we both agree on this, that extensions for those two guys are just a matter mm-hmm. of time and, and right. it's just a matter of how well, long they'll be and how extensive they are. I think there's a misunderstanding then about what extensions mean for managers and general managers. If the Mariners signed, I'm going to get real extreme here just to, to drive the point home. If the Mariners signed Scott service to a five-year extension, which is l- really long for a manager, especially yeah. a manager that hasn't won anything yet, who cares? Like if two and a half yeah, years still down fire. the road, it's time to say goodbye. <laughs> you fire him and you owe him what, $3 million. Like it's not the issue that some people seem to think it is. I mean, Jerry DePoto is not going to make $5 million a year on this new contract. He's just not. So if you give him four years or 10 years, it's not the deal that everybody thinks it is. Yeah. If you want to move on, you move on. When general managers get fired, the reason why it's a firing and just not a, we're not bringing this guy back. We're not renewing his contract. We're not resigning him. He's kind of walking away as a free is because there was time left on his contract and they were like, we need to move on now. So we're just going to owe him. Yeah. That happens in all sports. Uh, it happens in college. It happens in, I mean, and to think that signing him to, you know, signing these guys to an extension now when you're not a hundred percent sure that they're the two, that, that they're the group that's going to lead you back to the postseason. That's just not the way it works. I mean, when, when Bob Melvin went to Oakland, were they sure? No. Right. When you hired Jerry DePoto from the start, were you sure? No. You know, and, and now as we're gaining evidence, there's more evidence that they are the pair, that they are the group, than there is that there aren't. And maybe that's where the disconnect is because people don't see the wins and they don't understand that the first, you know, three seasons they were just kind of making the best of it and were kind of stuck in purgatory there. And mm-hmm. then after the 18 season is really when Jerry DePoto's job really started. But yeah, that's a, you're right. I, I think extensions are in order for both of those guys, but I think there's that at the fan level and to some extent at the media level, there's a huge misunderstanding in what extensions actually mean for managers and general managers. It actually means very little beyond the year in front of you. Well, and the other thing that I think it's lost, from a lot of people is, is they don't understand. We live in this fantasy, you know, fantasy football, fantasy baseball mentality where everyone's a GM uh, because they all have 10 of their own teams that they manage. And uh, <laughs> it, it's not as what I get from the fire Jerry DePoto crowd. And um, unfortunately, some of those voices are voices that have a platform, people that have mm-hmm. popular podcasts or, or have, you know, are kind of out in the mainstream and and have recognizable names or social media presence. Uh, It's not just about, I don't like a couple of the cherry pick trades this guy's made or the Mm. team's not a World Series contender this year and I want a World Series contender. It's about organizational structure and a complete teardown and rebuild. It's not just about picking a guy who signs better players or makes better trades to your liking. It's Mm. about now you got to redo the entire philosophy of the organization top to bottom. And there's so much overwhelming evidence that those things and those processes are so consistently implemented and be, and successfully implemented, implemented because the evidence is overwhelming at this point that why in the hell would you think that this guy doesn't then deserve to stick with this a little longer to see if he can get it to the next level? It just baffles me. 
Yeah, I think that's where the blank space is for some folks. And, and I'm not trying to pick on anybody at all, and, and certainly not anybody in particular. But when you don't understand how baseball teams are built and where the Mariners were when Jerry DePoto took over, like, like seriously, I feel like I have to say this every time it pops into my head. Yeah. Right? In, in 2016, when Jerry DePoto took over and Stanton was about to take over and he was running the team, like that was the uh, – you look at what the farm system had, not a whole lot. Like the farm system itself had nothing like Tyler O'Neill was their top prospect and I'm not yeah. picking on Tyler O'Neill, but you know, like at no point at any time in Tyler O'Neill's career, should he have been a top five prospect, let alone a number one prospect. The farm system was terrible. They had a few young players on the team. Like Paxton was there. Taiwan Walker was there and they tried to do some things with it. That's when they could tell Marte and Taiwan Walker and, and people pick on that deal too, Dan. And they forget that. Well, you did get Gene Segura out of that. And you did get Mitch Hanniger out of that. And ultimately you got JP Crawford yeah. out of that. Like, yeah. are we ignoring all of this too? Like, right. you, you know, like you said, it's a, it's a cherry pick kind of a scenario, but that blank area that people don't really understand is Jerry DePoto was not going to be allowed in 20. He didn't decide not to go out and spend a bunch of money. Like GMs never go, nah. And you know, owners are like, nah, like right. the GM, like Jerry would have been like, wait, you're going to give me like another $50 million a year in payroll. Sweet. Let's go out and take this aging team over the next three years and do everything we can and try to help them win. And they actually yeah. got close to legitimate content, uh, contention a couple of times. And then in yeah. 18, they contended all the way into early September before the, the A's pulled away. Um, but blaming Jerry DePoto for what, Bill Bavese and ultimately Jack Zarenzik set up for him on the farm and at the big league level and for the contracts that were on the books. So the first three years of DePoto's career here, he's being blamed for, even though it had nothing to do with him, had literally zero to do with Jerry DePoto. That was all Stanton saying, we've spent enough money. Let's try to do this the right way. And this is what Jack Sorensic left Jerry to post. Those are legitimate facts that people just do not want to admit are true because they want Jerry to put out because they don't understand, you know, when Jerry to was hired here, that was the deal. Jerry knew that was the deal, but he also knew after these two, three, four years, whatever it takes, we're going to let you do this your way. That's why he signed the deal. That's why he stayed. And again, you know what? That's why he's going to be here another two or three years, to be honest with you. I'm 100% sure the two sides know right now that there's already, in principle, an agreement between ownership and Jerry DePoto for him to stay as general manager of this baseball team. Well, let's kind of transition then to the next part of this, which is Jerry DePoto, Scott Hunter, and his staff uh, just had another draft. Uh, Was this their then fifth, sixth draft? 17 was um, the first one with Scott Hunter, yes. Yeah, and and again, part of all the evidence that we're talking about that these guys kind of have an idea of what they're doing is is there's a lot of draft success stories to this point. No no major league all-stars or superstars have developed yet, but we're still kind of kind of at the 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 uphill part of this process. This draft in particular was different though than any draft that we've seen not just from Jerry Depoto, but from any general manager of the Seahawks for the most part over the last 10, 15, 20 years. For the first time in a long time, they took a high school player, not only in the first round, but in the second round and the third round, led their draft, really built the top part of their draft around high school prospects. Before we talk about individual guys, what are your thoughts on on that process, that decision, and did it surprise you? Uh, it surprised me that they went prep three times in a row, yeah. 
Um, and, and it surprised me uh, if you'd asked me the when I woke up on Sunday morning, day one of the draft. If you'd have told me they're taking a prep play, I'd have been like, ah, well, I think it's possible. Uh, I wouldn't bet that way. I was never as convinced as most others seem to be that they were going college at that point. That seemed to be everybody's mock draft, all the folks that are connected out there, mm-hmm. uh, the pipelines, the baseball Americas. Everybody was, you know, Matt McClain, Colton Cowser, Sal Freilich, Time yeah. Matt, and that was just repeated like over and over and over again. I was never as convinced uh, of that because everything that I kept hearing about where uh, Scott Hunter was, where, like, w- which players they were going to see, which ones they spent their most time with, which ones that they actually talked to the most recently was a, a mix. It was a mix yeah. of those college guys and some of these prep players. And it, the morning of, I got word from two folks that are very well connected that ended up calling the pick that were like, it's going to be, it's going to be Harry Ford. Mm-hmm. So I didn't really say anything because I didn't want to give it away. It wasn't my information to give away, but uh, about an hour before the pick was made, I knew unless somebody else popped Harry Ford, that's what was going to happen. But yeah, going prep in round two and in round three definitely surprised me. It, it really did. But you know, it's funny after that 17 consecutive college players yeah, after that yeah. didn't pick a single high school player after that, but you kind of see what they're trying to do here that they're trying to mix things up. You've just had, you mentioned, you know, it was five drafts with the Poto four with, uh, with Scott Hunter uh, at the helm. And really, I think uh, three coming into this, this year, three, three drafts in a row where they really had everything kind of in order the way that they wanted. It takes a couple of years for a general manager to come in, get the scouting director he wants, get the player development director he wants, and to build the staff underneath them, including the analysts and your assistants in your front office, like the Justin Hollanders and and all the data folks there that do all the uh, analysis to get it together. So I think that 2018 draft was really the first time where it was like, Boy, we're we're a well-oiled machine. Let's go do it, and we're starting to to see the the fruits of, of that draft with uh, with Cal Raleigh and, and Logan Gilbert both in the big leagues at this point. Uh, th- yeah, I, I think the surprise was the three in a row for me. The yeah. three prep players in a row. If they'd have taken three of five, wouldn't have surprised me. If they'd have taken you know the first two and then college and then back to prep, probably wouldn't have surprised me that much. But three in a row absolutely caught me off guard for sure. Well, and it's interesting in in hindsight now, too, because you never know what to believe from front office people and scouting directors and head coaches before a draft in any sport. You know, we've seen we've seen Schneider and Carroll and some of the ways that they play with semantics and everything and in trying to, you know, not give away what they're going to do. Scott Hunter came out, I think it was on Wednesday before the draft in a pregame interview on Root Sports before the ball game and talked really openly about how for the first time in years, they love the high school players in this draft. And that's where their focus mm-hmm. was. I didn't really take it seriously at the time because these guys never give anything away, but it, apparently he wasn't blowing smoke. And, mm-hmm. and that's definitely the direction they went. Let's talk specifics. Now, Harry Ford, you mentioned him by name, catcher for the most part, uh, high school player out of Georgia. Uh, tell us what kind of player the Mariners are getting in him. Yeah, I think, uh, uh, and I'm not going to be telling any secrets here. Uh, the, the impression that I got from the folks that I talked to that seen him on a regular basis, some of the area guys down there that that saw him at North Cobb High School, were like everybody's under rating and under grading and selling short 
the power portion of this mm. because yeah, he's five ten and, 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 you know, and 200 pounds. So you see strength and you see bad speed, but do you see the leverage? And that's something that's really easy to miss as a scout is a shorter player creating the loft and, and leverage. But there are scouts out there that believe it's plus power that could get beyond that. And we've since heard Jerry DePoto uh, on local radio. I believe that was uh, Thursday morning. Uh, Jerry saying, hey, we really do believe the power is is pretty big here. And uh, w- when you look at the public reports that are out there uh, by the MLB pipelines and the Baseball America, it's, it's, it's all about, you know, big hit tool, but average power, maybe slightly above average power. But Seattle believes there's a lot more there as well, and you can see why they might have had him, uh, uh, you know, ranked quite a bit ahead of where, you know, ev- maybe everybody else did because they believe in that. Now, the – they do use a lot of data. The Mariners do more this year than even last year, but more last year than the year before. And that's just kind of the way teams are, you know, direction teams are moving these days. But when you look at the the data on, on Ford's swing and the exit velocities and the launch angles and things like that, you wouldn't look at that and go, yeah, this guy's probably five ten, uh, 190 to 200 pounds. Hmm. Probably got to be a defense and hit tool guy, maybe an athleticism guy. You would go, this guy's a third baseman or a right fielder, and he's going to hit 30 bombs a year. If Harry Ford was was a, was a center fielder in, in high school and catcher wasn't part of his profile, the general consensus on him would have been like top five to seven player. Wow. That's the conclusion that I've come to since probably the day before the draft. And I was kind of wondering at that point when I first started hearing this stuff, I was wondering if somebody in the top six or eight was going to pop him. And then when I heard on uh, on Sunday morning that Ford was Seattle's guy, I just started worrying for Seattle that he wasn't actually going to be there because mm. I actually heard that he was their their top guy in the draft. Yeah, like the whole draft. Like if Seattle was drafting one one, it would have been Harry Ford. I wow. mean, that blew me away, and that sent me in a, on a on a goose chase basically to find anybody else that I hadn't already talked to that had seen him extensively. And when I did, I started to understand why that was the case. Wow. Now what makes this really fascinating and, and maybe even a little bit confusing is where's he going to end up on the diamond. Ultimately Mm -hmm. uh, you hear about his elite athleticism um, that he, that he's plenty good enough behind the plate uh, defensively has plenty of arm, that he that he can catch. There's no questions about that. A lot a lot of times you get these these um, high school players, especially at that position, um, but even out of college, uh, the catchers that can hit. There's there always seems to be a question about whether they can stick behind the dish or be effective there. Mm-hmm. There's no question about that. The question is, is that the best way to handle him as a player? Is that the best place to ha- have him as far as his development goes? Will that slow down his path to the big leagues? Would it be better served to move him to another position? Um, the Mariners, interestingly enough, announced him as a catcher slash outfielder. I've mm-hmm. read some scouting reports that think he profiles better at second base. Selfishly, I would love to think he can play third base. He said he actually played there in high school before he moved to catcher mm-hmm. full time. How do you see that playing out? I actually think the reason the Mariners listen to him as a catcher slash outfielder 
is because they see him ultimately more likely turning into an outfielder than anything else. Um, He's going to get an opportunity to catch, but I think what's going to happen is like, ideally if the Mariners get their way, he, you know, realistically speaking, his bat develops so quickly that they just can't wait on the defense. They can't wait. It just takes a while, even for a kid with all the tools and, and, and the present defensive uh, skills that he has at catcher. Uh, it's just going to take three, four, you know, maybe five years for him to get from where he is to what's satisfactory even at the big league level. So I think of this uh, very, and I'm not comparing the players here, but I think of this very similarly to the way uh, Will Myers was handled, the way Bryce Harper was handled. In fact, Bryce Harper, people forget Harper was was a catcher. Yeah. Right. Automatically just, he's an outfielder. They announced him as an outfielder because we're like, we're not dealing with this catcher BS because this bat's going to get to the big leagues really quickly. And that was a really easy scouting gig too. I mean, for Washington at the time and, and, and Rizzo there, um, that while it was an easy decision, uh, and very clear, you could see that happening with, uh, with Harry Ford as well. Same thing with Will Myers. He was a high school catcher and was like, this bat's too good. We can't ask this guy to go through the rigors of catching and slow down his offense. So if I were predicting, I think he plays a lot. I think he catches a lot the first year or two uh, in the minors. And then as long as the bats developing the way that the club believes that it, that it will, that it should, uh, he ends up getting moved to the outfield And, and not that second base can't be it. Not that third base can't be it, but it's a little bit easier on the body. Uh, when you make a transition, when you go from catcher to second base, especially when you haven't played a lot of second base, uh, certainly not uh, enough to suggest that he's going back to a position that he's played before. It's still kind of new and you have to learn all those little intricacies around the bag and things like that. It's very physically demanding. So when you're changing things, throw them out in center field, throw them in left field, whatever it is, and just let the bat play. And if there are problems when you do that, you have, again, you have other options. Maybe he's just better at fielding a ground ball than tracking that screaming liner that's six feet to his left, but head height, you know, like that, that difficult one to, then, then you see of him just fielding a ground ball and moving laterally is his thing. And you can actually experiment a little bit early in his career, especially before the season starts when you're in spring training, it gets his work at catcher and it's like, Hey, go field ground balls for a little bit. Just to, let's just see what it looks like. See how it feels. Give yourself a break by the plate or go shag fly balls go go play let's go play some scrimmage games in center field or left field or whatever it is and see what happens that way if you end up making that move at some point it's not entirely foreign to him and in this day and age dan i'm not 100 sure it might not make sense for him to learn two positions anyway like you know in a perfect kind of the direction the game's headed yeah in a perfect world maybe he's your third catcher but he's a very good defensive left fielder or at least an average defensive third baseman. But now you kind of have three catchers on your roster. The flexibility you have there becomes incredible. We talk about the advantage of Shohei Otani being a really good starting pitcher and a great hitter. But what about a guy who could play multiple positions and give you a bat, give you offensive value that plays at all of them? And, and ultimately, that's the upside of Harry Ford. And that actually removes some of the risk from what would otherwise be a very problematic demographic hmm. in the baseball draft. One, it's a prep player, but it's a prep catcher, which is even more problematic than prep pitchers, despite the fact that pitchers get hurt a lot. Yeah. Catchers get hurt, too. Prep catchers don't develop. I use the example on uh, on baseball things uh, just, uh, just Wednesday night. Uh, in that 2009 draft with Will Myers, there were three prep players 
that were high school catchers that were potential first round picks. They didn't all go in the first round, but uh, Max Stasi was one of them. And it mm. took him 10 to 12 years to get anywhere near useful on an everyday basis at the big league level. Will Myers immediately moved, immediately moved out from behind the plate to play the outfield and is actually a pretty productive player. And the other one was Luke Bailey at Tommy John surgery. And he's out of baseball, never made the big league. So mm. that was supposed to be one of the best prep uh, drafts for catchers in a long, long time. And we see how that turned out. Yeah. Well, um, so then we go from Harry Ford, we go to the second round and, uh, hold on. I just lost my spot here a little bit, but, uh, uh, high school shortstop, 17 years old out of Puerto Mm -hmm. Rico, uh, Edwin Arroyo, interesting profile. When you, when you read about this kid, uh, he's been described as raw, um, what I like about it, though, so many times when you see shortstops drafted out of high school, college, there's always a question. We just talked about this with catchers. Can they stick at shortstop? Are they a true mm-hmm. shortstop? Are they a legitimate shortstop defensively? There don't seem to be any questions about that with Arroyo, that this kid is an outstanding defensive prospect at shortstop, has plenty of arm, if not a plus arm. Uh, the hit tool seems to be in question, although I've read plenty of scouts that believe in it. He just needs to grow up and, and fill out physically. What do you what do you think of Arroyo? Yeah, that, that's the word that I'm getting to that you just kind of have to. I mean, I think he's 176 pounds, uh, you know, about six feet tall, just 17 years old. He might grow another inch or two um, the way Noelvi Marte has um, since he was 16, 17 years old. So we might end up talking about a 6'1 or 6'2, 190 pound uh, athlete, which, you know, when, when you just look at it from a size and, and, uh, you know, a height and weight standpoint, that's a perfect fit for shortstop. You don't have to worry about him, the frame growing so big that he has to move off the position or lack the strength, the arm strength, especially to, uh, to hang at shortstop for the long term, where you have to move him over to second base. But I see, I see a lot of offensively. I see a lot of Adam Frazier in him, to be honest with you. I, I know that Arroyo's a switch hitter right. and right now, He's quite a bit better uh, as a right-handed bat, and Frazier's a left-handed bat. But uh, bat-to-ball skills are very good. He goes the other way uh, from both sides of the plate. He goes the other way uh, really, really well. Um, has a chance to at least develop gap power, and that's going to be really important for him. You don't want a punch and Judy guy playing every day. So whether he's going to be an everyday player or a bench guy utility type probably depends on can he develop a little bit of pop without sacrificing some of the hit tool. But he's really interesting. Um, you know, he's the switch thrower. You know, he pitched as a lefty but played shortstop and threw as a righty uh, along with being a switch uh, a switch hitter, which is just – the strangest thing. You just don't hear about stuff like that very often. And it just goes to show the kind of uh, hand-eye coordination that some of these guys have and the kind of uh, athleticism that a kid like Arroyo has and him being a little younger, you know, can help. I think Seattle values that. I think if Arroyo was 18 and a half, he doesn't go 48 overall and they go somewhere else. Uh, This gives them a lot more time to, uh, to not only mold him their way, but, to make decisions on, do we need to move him to the outfield? Uh, do we want to do this with his power swing? Do we want to do, it just gives you more time. And I think that that comes into play with Harry Ford as well. Yeah. You have, uh, you have a long time to, to, to fix any issues, any bad habits he might have that he learned in high school. I mean, let's be honest, these high school coaches and even some college coaches don't, 
teach, you know, fielders and hitters and pitchers and catchers how to do things the way that pro teams ultimately will. So there's going to have to be some changes, you know, in the way that Arroyo goes about things, the way that Ford goes about things. Uh, So, you know, you get high school kids and that's kind of the advantage. So you see the upside in some of these, these high school kids like Harry Ford with the power and the hit tool and, and maybe he can catch, but, you have five years to do it without having to worry about not getting anything out of your top two draft picks. And, and that's uh, extremely advantageous with a college kid. You have half that you really do. I mean, if you draft Matt McLean at, at 12 and in three years, he's not in the big leagues, that pick failed. Yeah. That, that failed. That's not what you wanted that pick to be. And you only had three years to really kind of mess with McLean and, and, and tweak some things and make adjustments and work with him before all of a sudden he's out of options and he's 26 years old and this is kind of who he is. And then he turns into Brad Miller who doesn't really do a whole lot offensively until he's like 30 years old and he's on his 14. So right. only fourth. Yeah. It might be eighth or ninth <laughs> to be honest with you. Yeah. With Brad Miller. It's a good year though. It's been fun to watch. And then uh, third round. So the Mariners, after three straight years of taking a college pitcher in the first round, wait until the third round to take an arm, and it's a high school kid, Michael Morales, out of Pennsylvania. Yeah, first glance, uh, I didn't love this uh, selection because uh, on the surface, you see a high school kid who's 6'2", 210, not a ton of physical projection left. You're not thinking he can put on 15 pounds of weight, add velocity, add durability. He's kind of already there physically. But then the more you dig uh, and the more I asked, and I actually got some video on him from some uh, some workouts hmm. from uh, from back in May, the delivery is so smooth and easy. You can see the Mariners adding three to five miles an hour in velocity and him ended up ending up 93 to 96. Um, So this is a bit of, uh, and I said this before, but this is the process, you know, of drafting a kid like Morales reminds me of the George Kirby pick, even though it's high school versus college. And it's a a kid like Kirby who's six, four, six, five versus Morales. Who's not, and doesn't have that physical projectability. Um, but you get a kid where you like a lot of the other things about him and some things, some of the traits and some of the, uh, the tools that he has, including the mechanics suggest to you, we can get more velocity out of this kid and, and completely change his profile. Because when you think about it, like 90 to 92 on a fastball, that's not going to excite anybody unless the kid's like six, five, 190 pounds. And you can add some weight and strength and do some things with the delivery. Um, when you see 62205 like that, you're thinking he's kind of maxed out in a lot of ways. But when you dig a little deeper into the data, into the, uh, uh, into the delivery, you totally, I totally understand what the Mariners are trying to do. I totally understand what they're trying to get out of Michael Morales. And I actually think he's going to end up being over slot and that uh, they probably got a steal here in the third round. Because I heard a lot of uh, – there were some clubs in the 30 to 35 range that were strongly considering hmm. – uh, Morales as a slightly under slot at that particular point. And Seattle got him in the third round at 83 where slot is like 730 grand. I think they're yeah. going to have to pay him a million dollars. Well, and, and I was going to ask you about that next. Uh, there's uh, it's reportedly, they've already reached agreement for exactly slot with Harry Ford. Doesn't mm-hmm. sound like there's going to be any issues getting Arroyo signed, but Morales might take some work. Yeah, but I think they plan this out. I think there's a chance that Arroyo comes in under the one five five. I think it is uh, at at slot. It's possible there too. Um, but certainly in round five with Andy Thomas, the kid from Baylor, I think slot there's about three hundred eighty grand. They could get him for anywhere from ten grand to a hundred grand and save 
a huge number there. You could save 250 to 300 plus thousand dollars on that pick alone mm-hmm. and hand that to Morales and you're already over a million dollars there. So yeah. I don't know what the number is there, but I'd be surprised if it wasn't north of a, uh, of a million dollars. And, and that actually brings up uh, some of the picks from later that there are a couple of picks um, that might require a significantly over slot, including a pick or two after the first 10 rounds that they picked up on day three, that would probably require over slot and slot for every pick after 10 is a hundred thousand dollars. Every penny over that counts toward your bonus pool. So if they don't have any bank left, once, you know, they get these guys signed, you know, 11 through 20 have to be a hundred thousand dollars maximum or you're not getting the player signed. So I'm really curious to see how they move money around here. What a perfect transition, because what I wanted to talk about next, <laughs> after we get past that, the first three rounds, which I think were the, the real storyline of this draft going high school, those first three rounds. I do really like the fourth round pick, though, Dan. I will tell you that. Bryce Miller, the kid from a and at 6'2", 180. I mean, we were just talking about how 6'2", 210 is a lot different yeah. than when you get a kid who has a frame where you can add 15 pounds easily and not worry about slowing him down athleticism. Uh, 92 to 95 touch 99 in a relief role. I think there's some, some Levi stout comps here that work. If you want to stay in the Mariners organization where the floor here is three pitch reliever that might be able to go two innings for you at a time and, and maybe even reach triple digits with a plus breaking ball. So it's all about uh, throwing more strikes and uh, improving the slider for Miller. But uh, I, I like that pick at one thirteen. Well, I wonder, I was going to ask you later, um, of all the kids that they took, one through 20, who would you put your money on having the best shot at getting to the big leagues first? Would that possibly be your answer? Uh, I'd probably pick uh, Brian Wu, the six-rounder, okay. just as a, because as he's a reliever. trying to be a reliever. Yeah. yeah, as a reliever. So if you go non-reliever, yeah, it might be Miller, but um, man, he still is a little bit of a project. Okay. Um, assuming that everybody signs for a second, um yeah, it's probably Miller, I would think. But Harry Ford's in that conversation. It's not going to take him five years to get to the big leagues. If it takes five years to get to the big leagues, that tells that's that's bad. That means the right. bat didn't develop, and they left him a catcher as a result. I mean, we've seen that go the other way. When like when they drafted Marcus Littlewood and his bat struggled, they were like, maybe yeah. you can catch because if you can hit at this level and catch, that works. But it doesn't playing shortstop or third base. Yeah. So uh, I think Harry Ford's absolutely in that conversation. I'm not sure, to be honest with you, I wouldn't bet on Ford being the first non-reliever in this draft class to get to the big leagues. Okay. Um, and then you kind of teased this by talking about um, the need potentially to go over slot on some of these later kids. But there's a couple arms that really intrigue you on day three even of the draft between rounds 11 and 20, including the two JC pitchers. Talk about those guys. Yeah, uh, Troy Taylor is one, the 20th round pick out of Cypress College. Uh, I think he's listed at six feet and 195. He's probably 5'11 and 215, to be honest with you. He is built like a, like a house. Um, low to mid-90s fastball, pitched in the draft league. Both of these kids pitched in the draft league. Uh, you have to like the fastball data on a, guy, on a guy like Taylor. I'm not sure how signable he is, but he is a second-year JC player. Um, so there's some leverage there. Uh, he may not want to use that leverage. Uh, he'll be 21 in September. We'll kind of see how that works out, but, uh, I don't think a hundred thousand dollars is necessarily going to get it done with a guy like Taylor. And Andrew Moore was the, uh, I know that name scares some folks because, uh, <laughs> they, they selected Andrew Moore out of the, in the, uh, in the third round a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. 
and nobody really understood why except Tom McNamara, and that obviously didn't work out for the Mariners or the Rays at the end of the day. But this kid is entire he this Andrew Moore from Chipola College in Florida is the antithesis of Andrew Moore, the kid out of Oregon State from back in the day. He is six five, six six, two hundred and fifteen, two hundred and twenty pounds. Uh, he's touched ninety nine miles an hour. He's consistently ninety three to ninety seven. He also pitched in the draft league. His slider has improved, and there's a college scout out there, and and. And I think more is signable because he's a little older. Uh, I think he's going to be okay. 22 years old, like in a month or something like that. So I think that I think signability there is uh, isn't as much of an issue as it might be with Taylor or a couple of the other players from uh, from day two and three. Um, but yeah, I mean, you just just think of that profile: six five, two twenty, two twenty five, uh, up to ninety nine miles an hour. Uh, good rise kind of movement on his fastball. So life up in the zone uh, and the college coach that I was, I was getting to there keeps bugging me about him. They need to get the, they need to sign this guy. They need to sign this guy. And I'm like, well, but what's the, the trend? What was the, the quote that I used for, uh, for more from, from this, uh, this scout, this college coach was uh, uh, the, it, he hasn't done a whole lot. So he wasn't going to go early, but the trend is like a stiff north wind or something like that. And I was just like, well, okay, you're getting creative in a way to kind of describe where this guy's heading. So everything yeah. is pointing up okay. for a guy like Andrew Moore over like the last year. And the draft league actually helped him quite a bit because some mm-hmm. people saw him touch 97, 98, 99 uh, with that movement on his fastball. We're able to collect some, uh, some data very late in the process. And I think that helped more get drafted. Uh, yeah, I just checked. He is, uh, he was born in August of 99. So he's going to be 22 in August. Okay. So there's, yeah, I don't know that there's a whole lot of signability issues there. I'm not sure it's going to take more than a hundred thousand dollars to get him, but if they do get him signed, I think that's a really interesting project to add hmm. to your system. So I want to be careful about how I frame this next question. Um, but every year I like to, and I'm not a scout. I don't watch these guys extensively. It's kind of hard to, for anyone to, if they're not uh, in the business, have the connections you do and, and do what you do. Um, but you can you can glean something from looking at statistics and looking at, at track record and production. And there was something about Patrick Frick when he was drafted in 2019, 14th round, uh, that just stood out to me, even though he was a, he was a senior sign, right? Uh, mm-hmm. out of Wake Forest and a guy that you know didn't didn't leap off the charts athletically certainly wasn't a top prospect obviously going in the 14th round was was an easy sign probably went under slot because he was a he was a grad but when you look at his stat line some things jumped out and he clearly had a skill set he had more walks than strikeouts his senior year i think his first entire college career uh, he did. clearly saw the strike zone well knew what he could do what he couldn't do um but you didn't really think, well, wow, this is a big leaguer. Just just was interesting. You know, it stood out to me. And now, two years later, Patrick Frick's like a stiff north wind. I mean, he's really his <laughs> his profile is changing by the day and he's probably about to be promoted. And and mm-hmm. and you don't have to squint as hard now to see a big leaguer there of some sort. Are there any guys in this draft out of these 20 rounds? that kind of remind you of that, that we haven't talked about yet that might not leap off the page, but that you can see have a chance to change their profile and maybe surprise us by being a big leaguer one day. Yeah, there might be some signability issues with these uh, with these two that I'm about to bring up, but uh, James Parker, the eighth rounder out of Clemson, 
um, right-handed bat, uh, 6'1", 205. Uh, probably can handle shortstop, might have to move to second or third, but he started to add power to his game. And that's made him really, really interesting. I think he had eight home runs this year after hitting like four combined his uh, first two years in college. Uh, and, and you see the bat speed, you see the torque, you see the swing. So he's really interesting. Uh, 12th rounder, Corey Rozier, who this, he might be the most difficult of uh, of their picks to sign. He's a draft eligible sophomore out of UNC Greensboro. So not only does he have next year to go back into the draft, and still have leverage, but he has an additional year after that with leverage because of the extra year the NCAA gave kids last year. So there's tons of leverage here. And, and if I were him, uh, unless the Mariners are offering me like 300 grand, which would take an extra $200,000 uh, to do, I'm going back to school for a year. Uh, he, hit, if I remember correctly, he hit over 350 had 12 home runs, 27 extra base hits, something like that showed some speed. Um, uh, he's a really interesting kid who could end up, you know, surprising some folks uh, coming from a small school. People tend to doubt the power and that's why, you know, the data on, on uh, exit velocities and things like that yeah. uh, is so meaningful, but he has good numbers there too. I, I think Ben Ramirez, the kid out of USC is really interesting. I, I don't know that he's a long-term shortstop, but he might be the closest thing. They, uh, the Mariners drafted this year to Patrick Frick. He's a left-handed bat played shortstop. And then mostly third base this year, at USC, but you watch the swing, you can get excited for for the hands and, and the bat speed and, and the the swing plane with Ben Ramirez. So he's really interesting and you know very similarly built. I think he's a little taller than Patrick Frick. I think he's six two six three, but uh, kind of reminds me of that uh, that kind of a situation where he could get in. A- okay, so we've lost Jason Churchill. A little technical difficulty with the. With the signal, so I've kicked him out for the time being. He should be able to hop back in, hopefully. Um, Got a couple more questions for him. Of course, we've touched on it. Cal Raleigh officially called up. He'll make his Major League debut tomorrow night in Anaheim. And uh, Jerry DePoto confirming this morning on his radio show that Jared Kelnick is being called up for the second time um, after struggling so mightily his first time up and then going back to Tacoma uh, and really kind of putting things, some things together and, and destroying AAA pitching, he'll be up again Friday. So it'll be fun to see the first lineup for the Mariners at the big league level anyway with Raleigh and Kelnick involved uh, at the same time. Hoping to get Jason back in. want to ask him about another uh, draft prospect. Um, and then uh, we're going to move on talk about the second half a little bit. But let me take a moment to talk about our show uh, coming up on Monday, again, if you haven't heard, uh, Bill Alfstad and Keith Myers of the Seahawks Playbook Podcast. They've got like 250 episodes to their uh, to their credit. I think it's the best Seahawks podcast out there. And uh, we had an opportunity where Bill's coming up to visit the Seattle area um, to visit some friends and family. He lives down in Phoenix. And so we, we started kicking around this idea and came up with the thought that let's do a combined show. And then that turned into, let's do a live combined show. And then that turned into, let's find a cool venue. And that turned into, let's invite guests. And now it's a three-hour extravaganza where we're going to break down the Seahawks heading into training camp. Corbin Smith of Seahawk Maven will be joining us as well. Um, That's Monday 
at Ozzy's Tavern in Seattle at 105 West Mercer from 3 to 6 on Monday. Take advantage of happy hour. We've got tons of giveaways. Get there early. You can chat it up with us and share a cocktail or stay late and we can talk some Seahawks as well. Looks like Jason is back with us. Let's get him back in here and see. All right, so uh, Jason is rejoining me. For those of you who don't know, he lives in the mountains, in the woods, with no power. I think it's just solar energy and a and a windmill uh, that powers I things. Have to hold bubbles in my hand the whole time on each side. You know, I got this red one in my right hand and this green one in my left hand, and I just dropped one. So that's what happened. Uh, one more thing about this draft: we were talking about guys that uh, that that might not attract a lot of attention on the draft list, but have a chance to really be something substantial if, if their development goes well. Um, tell me about Colin Davis, seventh round draft pick outfielder out of Wofford. I think that's how you pronounce it. Six one one ninety hit three fifty, an OPS over a thousand seems like a guy that just has, has a lot of tools uh, in his belt. Uh, he's got a little pop hit 11 home runs was player of the year in his conference. Also stole 18 bags and his walk to strikeout ratio is is really solid as well. A guy that can run. Uh, what do you make of Colin Davis? You know, I think he's kind of uh, uh, kind of Mitch Haniger light in a way. If you think about Mitch Haniger when he came out of Cal Poly several years back, he was uh, he was thought of as a very athletic. A kid who could hit. There's some power there, um, but he was thought of more as an athlete than he is a hitter. And we think of him now as well. He's very average when it comes to athleticism, you know, compared to uh, most baseball players these days. But boy, he's a good hitter. And mm-hmm. I think there's some of that in Davis uh, as well. Obviously, it's a little bit more of an uphill climb uh, for Davis. Uh, there's some things with the swing you're going to have to work on. Uh, probably profiles best in left or right field. Um, you know, a pretty decent runner does some things well, but again, here's that, that mid major slash smaller school concern, what he did at the plate, what does it actually mean? So this is where you lean on the data. This is where you lean on exit velocities. This is where you lean on, you know, what he does in, you know, showcase events, what he does the one time that he faced a kid throwing 96, you know, things of that nature. And, you know, I think he was probably selected about where he belonged. I I got a lot of uh, around six through 10 on him, but I think they have a chance to get, uh, to get him signed for a little under the slot. I think slot is 225 uh, at that particular spot. But, um, you know, he's interesting too. I I think what's, um, you know, we could go through every player in this draft or really any team's draft and, and find something interesting about every player here. But I gotta be honest with you, Davis to me, I mean, Thomas is interesting because he's a catcher and he's a lefty and there's some power there, but uh, Davis might be the least interesting of their top 10 picks, you know, to be honest with you. I I just, there's, there's not a lot of like physical projection left there. So you're kind of relying on like everything else, like between the ears and mechanically, but what that doesn't mean is like, he can't max those things out and kind of turn into Mitch Hanniger light. I mean, there are a lot of players at the big league, you know, maybe turns into like a right-handed hitting Robbie Grossman. And that guy's a valuable player who just signed a two-year deal. What do you get, like 12 million guaranteed? That's obviously a valuable player. So uh, there are all kinds of roles that the the Colin Davises and the Spencer Packards, uh, he was the ninth rounder out of Campbell, uh, who's actually a little bit more interesting being a left-handed bat with a little bit more raw power and and, uh, and a little easier swing. But uh, the, the Mayors did some interesting things in this draft that, you know, it kind of goes back to the top three picks that, that yeah. I didn't really expect – uh, to see from them. And, you know, I love the JC thing from the arms, but when you go to smaller schools, whether it's because, you know, you're going to, cause he's a senior, you're going to get him signed cheaper or not. When you go to the smaller schools, you always wonder, 
on the other side as well. As much as it's, yeah, but he played at Campbell. Who did he face? What's the level of competition? There's always the other side of it. What would he have done? How how would his physical tools and his skills have been challenged and potentially shown greater results had Spencer Packard played in the SEC? Yeah. I always think about yeah. that as well because not every good player comes from a big school. Sure. I mean, we know that to be fact in every sport. So, uh, you know, I, I never look at these players as like, well, he's kind of a nothing pick because you just never know. I mean, Albert Pools is what, like a 12th or a 13th round pick for crying out loud. You just yeah. never know. And you know what? It doesn't take tons of – it doesn't take size. It doesn't take speed. And it doesn't take uh, anything that you can quantify on paper – to be a good hitter. You have to generate some bat speed, but we don't really quantify that the way that, you know, we don't go, Oh, he hit, he swings 93 miles an hour. We're worried. Can he get to 97 mile an hour velocity? I don't care how quick the swing is. Yeah. Is the swing short enough or does he have enough bat speed at a combination of two of the two? So all you gotta do is hit. If you can yeah. hit, you're going to find your way to the big leagues. Nice. Well, um, let's move on to the Mariners. 20, well, I was going to say 26-man roster, but for the next 10 days, it's 25-man <laughs> roster again because uh, the, the ruling just came down on Hector Santiago. His uh, appeal was upheld, and uh, the Mariners will be without him and his He's roster spot for his crimes, for the next Dan, 10 his days. Crimes to, his crimes <laughs> against baseball. He's being punished. Ah, what a brutal set. Uh, yeah, <laughs> uh, but tomorrow's going to be a fun day in Anaheim. Uh, first time at the big league level that we're going to see a lineup card turned in, presumably with both these names on it, Cal Raleigh and Jared Kelnick playing at the same time. We've seen Kelnick. Um, Let's talk about him in a second, but first I want to talk about Cal Raleigh. His, His rise through the minor leagues, obviously interrupted by the pandemic, has been pretty workmanlike and steady and consistent. You know, you don't see that a lot. Either a guy kind of kind of races his way through the minor leagues. We saw that with Kelnick Gilbert, and, and we've, we're seeing that with Rodriguez. Raleigh just kind of got promoted when you expected him to get promoted because he was productive, and then he was productive at the next level. They didn't ever seem to rush him, maybe because he's a catcher. And from day one in Tacoma this year, he was a productive player. And if the Mariners were waiting for the other shoe to drop or waiting to see him struggle, he really didn't. After the hitting streak was snapped, I think he had an 0 for 10, and then he just kind of kept right on doing what he's doing. What do you expect from Cal Raleigh, and do you think the timing is right to bring him up now? Yeah, I think the timing was right. I think the one thing that uh, uh, that we can't see outside of that organization, uh, and you certainly don't see it in the box score, you don't see it in the stat line, and you don't see it in his scattering reports because this isn't something that anybody but the club is privy to and that's how he works to prepare to catch Logan Gilbert or Hector Santiago or Logan Barrett or whoever it was down in the mind, Darren McCacken, whoever it was uh, we don't know the answers to those questions and there was some buzz that that's what Jerry DePoto was was really looking for was was wanting to get him to a certain point in, in that manner uh, before they called him up and not that he would have struggled at anything we would notice two months ago, but that's what they were trying to do. Um, I think there was probably a little more to it than that, but even if that was the reason why they left him down as long as they did, I, I certainly don't have any problem with it. As far as what to expect, uh, there is a wide range of potential uh, results here. He could struggle like Kelnick. Sure, he could. Do I expect that? No, uh, I think one thing that Raleigh has over Kelnick is the experience of, and you kind of alluded to it there. Uh, 
going through not necessarily big struggles, but enough to where you're like, all right, when I'm batting left-handed, uh, teams are doing this to me. When I'm batting right-handed, teams are doing this to me. Um, let's go ahead and make this adjustment. Kelnick's just rushed through the minor so quickly because he's just been so good that he hasn't really needed to do that. Hasn't really even had the opportunity to do that. I think last year in 2020 probably would have been his, the, the first time where he was challenged like that. Cause I think he was probably going to start last season in double a and then end up in triple a or the big leagues and probably would have seen some time like that yeah. last year at one of those two levels. And he just didn't Cal Raleigh did. I mean, he didn't hit three twenty at every stop. Um, it, you know, there, there were some struggles. I mean, certainly not. He's hitting 160 over a 50 game period, but enough to where he's thinking, all right, I gotta do something different. I'm diving in on this pitch or I need to stay back against it. Like he's feeling that he's seeing that he's thinking through things uh, like that. And Kelnick never had to do that until he went over 39 at the big league level. So, yeah. uh, you know, the comparing the two is, is really difficult uh, with Raleigh. It's been really impressive. Not only is he a catcher, like you mentioned, uh, and it does take time, but he does have the two swings. Yeah. And the two swings are not remotely similar. Like they, you might hear him tell you that they're similar. They are not even remotely similar. The left handed swing is a little bit more, I don't it's more power oriented. I think it's. Hmm. Right-handed swing has always been a little bit more line drive type where for the longest time, I thought if Cal Raleigh is a 260 career hitter at the big league level, he's probably going to hit 280 as a righty and 249 as a lefty. Like that was kind of a, you know, kind of, kind of the way I went along with that out of college. Uh, the first time I saw him down in, down in Everett, I, I think he's going to play a lot, but not every day. I think because at least for now, they do have three catchers on the roster. Now I don't know how long that's going to last, but yeah. There's only 71 games left. I think they can make that work because Terenz is getting some DH time. Cal Raleigh will probably DH a little bit. Uh, Terenz can even play first base at a pinch. I don't think you have a roster crunch there necessarily, but uh, I think he'll play and then he'll sit. I think he'll play, 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 and then he'll sit and then he'll get a DH day and then he'll catch and, and be in the lineup. I think there's a good way to make sure he's not overwhelmed um, before he gets to a point where you're worried about him being overwhelmed. I, I think uh, uh, Raleigh's a little bit more prepared for this, certainly more prepared for this than uh, than Kelnick was just like emotionally and mentally because he's just been through more. Uh, I think he's very similar to Logan Gilbert in this way. He's ready for this challenge. That doesn't mean he won't struggle, right. but he's absolutely 100% ready for this challenge. Ready is the word that they're looking for from Kelnick on his second time up. You mentioned it. He, he had the great second game, two for, uh, three, four, two doubles, had the home run, and then the struggles set in. And you, you mentioned the 0 for 39. And really there was, there was two sort of distinct portions of that struggle for him. At first, he wasn't getting any hits, but he was still hitting the ball hard. And all the data looked good. And so it was easy to believe that, well, it's just a matter of time. Some of those will fall in. Uh, he'll have one of those Jake Bowers games where he goes three for four and nothing's over 70 miles an hour on the exit velocity. <laughs> That's a Jake Bower special. But, yeah, it but, it's, but then he started pressing and then it got mm-hmm. ugly and he got away from his game plan and he looked overmatched and he, uh, they, it was clear to everybody at the time they sent him down it was the right thing to do. It took him about a week to 10 days to kind of get it going again in Tacoma and that can be expected of young players sometimes. Mm-hmm. It's a shock to be sent back down especially when you have the expectations placed on you that that Kelnick does. But then things started to click, and he started to string together 
some hits. And then he started to mash and mm-hmm. really, really rake and destroy AAA pitching. What did you see from him after he started getting it going? And what have you heard about how he, how he handled things down there that lead you to believe he's more ready this time than the first time? Uh, for me, it was about the anxiety that he was showing at the plate and, and it really pressing maybe, but I think the better term for it was he was so anxious to perform. He was so anxious that it literally did exactly what you think having anxiety when you're standing in the batter's box would do. You're going to get out front. You're going to drop your back, your back arm and your swing is going to get loopy. Uh, all of those things happen. And he got overly aggressive. He was just anxious to get out of the slump, to prove that he belonged there, to get hits because he wants to win. He wants to perform. Uh, and there might not be anybody in the organization that takes failure as hard as he does. And that was something, you know, and it still is something that he has to learn. Like you said, that there was about a week or so where he wasn't good down, down in Tacoma either. Yeah. And, and the issues were very, very similar, but once he calmed down and settled in, I, I think overall in his last uh, uh, 24 games, he's 30 for his last 90 with uh, 16 of those 30 hits going for extra base, including seven home runs and 13 walks and 13 strikeouts uh, in like 115 players. But that is exactly what you want to see from him. But I think the most important thing is the anxiety was gone. The over-aggression was gone. And I think the proof there is, is beyond the performance itself is he was hitting balls where they were pitched. He was hitting some balls up the middle. He was hitting a few balls the other way. And, I've seen people on Twitter say, oh, he's pulling everything. He's pulling it. Well, if they're going to pitch you middle in and you can hit a ball 105 miles an hour to your pull side. Like, I don't see what's wrong with that. Yeah. If, if you go over a three-week stretch and you're pulling 70% of everything, but you're hitting 390 with power, who cares where you're yeah. hitting the ball? I, I think the rate of, of pulling the ball, especially over small samples in the Myers, is just completely meaningless. But did we see him hit some balls hard the other way? We did. Yeah. Did we see him hit some balls hard up the middle? We absolutely did. Yeah. Um, had a little bit of bad luck on a couple of them, but he got some hits the other way. Uh, hit the ball uh, on a line the other way, hit the ball on the ground a little bit hard uh, to left center field where there's holes because they play him to pull. They shift on him pretty good. Um, that's going to be important for him is to, to stay back, to, to trust that he can hit 95 miles an hour uh, without cheating and take care of those breaking balls. You, you mentioned a little bit ago, before he went into the, the, the major portion of his slump, the, the, the slump that, it, that that had started out was very, I'm going to hit the ball hard once a game and have nothing to show for it. And, and I think his 350, I think he's hitting 356 at the major league level. His XWOBA against fastballs is 356. Hmm. And that includes the 0 for 39, which tells you that even for a decent portion of that, he was hitting some fastballs hard. Yeah. So that's kind of where it starts. That's your foundation. You have to be able to hit fastballs. And if you're cheating, uh, they're they're going to stop throwing you fastballs and they're going to get you out with everything else. And that's what started to happen. So I'm a little nervous about this, to be honest with you, Dan, I'm a little nervous that it's too soon. I'm a little nervous that, um, that he's going to press again. Uh, we're talking about a kid who uh, he hasn't even turned 22 yet. I yeah. think his birthday is a couple of days away or it's tomorrow or something like that. I, I, it's coming up, but, and he doesn't have tons of experience. He spent, uh, six games in AAA and then was called up. He spent 23 games in the majors, struggled for almost all of it, then was sent down. And he's been down for 24 games. So th- there's a lot of back and forth here, and he just went to the Futures game, and, and his head is, you know, I don't want to say his head's in the clouds, but there's a lot going on between his ears. So I'm a little nervous. Um, and, and I'm not nervous for 
Kelnick's future at all. I'm right. nervous because this is maybe the most impatient fan base in any sport in North America. <laughs> if Jared Kelnick goes 0 for 5 on Friday, mm-hmm. get off Twitter. Just turn it <laughs> off because it will be DePoto made a terrible trade. Jared right. Kelnick can't hit. And then you'll get these gurus out yeah. there to like, see, I told you that hitching a swing isn't going to work for him. I mean, just FOH with all that, like give the kids some time, but I am nervous about it because yeah. of that, because of the pressure that would be thrown on him from everybody outside that organization to perform very early. The best possible thing that could happen for the Mariners and for Jared Kelnick is for Jared Kelnick to even go one for four on Friday. Yeah. A little trickler up the third base. It doesn't snap that streak. Yeah. Snap that streak. He's 15 away from yeah. Chris Davis' all-time record. They got to stop talking about and, it. Yeah. And that's going to be and, – and what's crazy here is he could go over 62, and I'm still not going to be like, yeah, I guess Jared Kelnick's not going to hit. Right. He's 22 years old. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, are there some things you might need to fix that maybe you didn't think were there? Sure. But the foundation is still there. And that's yeah. the most important part of it. Well, and I wonder if, if uh, he might have a little bit of, more of a soft landing this time around, because I, I don't know that the Mariners did him any favors last time by immediately inserting him in the leadoff spot when he came up. And, and with J.P. Mm-hmm. Crawford doing what he's doing now, I think he's firmly entrenched there. I would expect to see Kellnick hitting in the bottom third of the lineup. I think that 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 alone might just kind of lessen the pressure from from the fan base as, as well as maybe internally. He does have one thing going for him now, though, that he didn't have the first time he was called up. Because as of a couple of weeks ago, he's... He's become a big fan of El Gaucho, and it's kind of become his go-to place to treat himself to a steak <laughs> dinner when he has an off night from the Rainiers. And since he started eating there about two weeks ago, you can look at the numbers in Tacoma. There's a correlation there. I'm just saying. Uh, he was in last night. He kind of gave us gave us a heads up that he's getting called up. Um, I think technically I was the first one that had that on Twitter, but... Uh, um, hey, you know what? If if Wade Boggs won sixty four batting titles because the chicken, he chicken that's before right. every game, <laughs> then El- I'll, Jared Kelnick, if you're listening to this podcast, and I and I know you are because you should, <laughs> I will buy your dinner every night if you perform. <laughs> I will do it every night just to keep the haters at bay. I think just there's the clearly an advertising opportunity there if this goes well over the next few months <laughs> for yeah. him and for us. Uh, it's a tough matchup on Friday, too. I think Andrew Haney's going for the Angels, mm. so it's left on left. But um, lefties do okay against uh, against Andy. So while on, on the surface it looks like a really, you know, like maybe that shouldn't be his first game back, right. you just have to face lefties. You can't sit versus lefties. Left on left, you have to hit lefties. So, uh, so considering that it's a lefty, this might be one of the more favorable matchups you could ask for. Speaking of left-handed pitchers, I have one more question for you. And and because I I was talking to someone the other day about, well, this is probably it then. Like this is it for kind of the the prospects we were expecting some of the top guys to make their debuts this year now that Raleigh's coming up. We got Gilbert, now Kellenick's back. But but does somebody else have a chance to surprise and get a late season call up and and get some innings? Um, and, and specifically, I'm wondering about Brandon Williamson, recently promoted to double A after dominating at high A with Everett. He's pitched extremely well in double A. And, and sometimes Jerry DePoto said it himself. Sometimes the jump from double A straight to the majors isn't that big of a leap. And, and we haven't seen the Mariners do it in quite a while. Not a lot under DePoto, but we see teams do that. Does he or someone else have a chance to kind of surprise us? And, and maybe we're not done 
seeing some of those those interesting prospect names make their debuts this year? I think in terms of arms, uh, I think your best bet is uh, is an Ian McKinney or a Penn Murphy out of the bullpen, I, or the Wyatt Mills. They might need McKinney if they if they keep losing starting pitchers. Yeah, they, they might, and, and he might be their best bet. Yeah. Um, other than that, the the Williamson thing, I, I have reservations about that thought process because um, while it's true, sometimes the jump from Double A to the big leagues isn't that large. Williamson doesn't have much experience at all. I think he's made. Uh, uh, you know what, 10 starts, I yeah. think, in the minors, you know. So, like, what are we doing here? You know, he's made nine starts this year, and I think he made uh, a couple of short – he made nine or ten short appearances, even though they were technically starts for yeah. Everett back in 2019. So uh, – and then you look what what's happening, and we've seen some good uh, in Arkansas in his three starts. But overall, we're seeing him uh, not miss the strike zone a lot, but miss his spots a lot more, and <laughs> that's why they challenged him. So he's got a lot of work to do there, at least in a starting role. You want to call him up, pitch him out of the bullpen a few times, in September, I could absolutely see that being a way to kind of get his feet wet um, and then sending him to AAA to start next season and kind of see see what happens from there. But uh, I don't know that the Mariners have entirely closed the door on a September call-up for Julio Rodriguez. And Hmm. while I don't love it, uh, I see why they don't want to close that door. Uh, I don't think you ever want to tell somebody um, there's no way you can get to the big leagues this year. Uh, The fact that he's so young shouldn't be the reason. Uh, if he earns it and you think he can play there or, you know, you have to go to 28 in September. Um, so you're adding a, a couple of players on top of your 26, man. Is one, Do you want one of those to be Julio Rodriguez, even for a portion of it? Yeah. You might. So you might call, but it depends on where the team is, but you might call up a couple of arms. And then if you're out of it the last couple of weeks of September, you might swap one of them out for Julio Rodriguez and just give him a couple of that bats and kind of show the crowd, you know, what to look forward to and, and kind of get, uh, get Julio Rodriguez uh, you know, kind of get his feet wet and kind of get him used to the bigger stadiums, the bigger crowds, because probably sometime next year he's going to come up maybe to stay. So uh, as far as the bigger names, I, I man, I, I don't know. I would say probably no okay. on all of them would yeah. be the best bet, but I think it's possible we see uh, we see one of those starters, probably Williamson, in a relief role and maybe Julio Rodriguez for a very short period of time. Well, a lot can happen between now and the end of the year. Who knows which direction it's going to go? Notice I didn't uh, I didn't try to talk about where you think the team is in regards to the trade deadline, what they should do, mm-hmm. are they a true contender? Because that's that's a whole other conversation. That's a whole other episode. Don't we already know that they're trading for Max Scherzer and Starling Marte and Trevor Story? Did I just miss I that? I we already knew that, that was happening, Dan. Is, is that why you left the, the stream about a half an hour ago is to get confirmation of those moves? <laughs> yes, it is. That, that's absolutely <laughs> it. Yeah, let's, let's blame that. Well, listen, absolutely. technical difficulties aside, uh, and we have a history of this, of course. Let's let's not kid ourselves. We got locked out of your studio the first time we tried to do this. Yes, we did. That's uh, a funny story. <laughs> but all of it's my fault, too. That's what's great about this. Dan has done nothing but show up to, to play his his role really well and I screwed it up. <laughs> some of Too this may of have actually times. come from this end. I, th- I think there were some some kind of stop and go issues that may have been related to my Wi-Fi. But we are the the Dan Cave Studios are relocating over the next few weeks, and the technical part of it should be much more powerful as we will actually be in the heart of the Emerald City and be in the Seattle city limits the next time we talk. And so maybe in August, depending on what's going on with the team, we'll have you back on again 
uh, with the new studio, and we'll kind of check back in on where where we stand with Raleigh and, and Gilbert, who we didn't even talk about, coming off a dominating performance uh, a little over a week ago, and, and some of the other guys as we kind of get closer to the end of the season. And then I know we're going to talk a lot this offseason because it's going to be maybe the most fascinating offseason in Mariners history. So, again, Jason Churchill, uh, if you want to find him, prospectinsider.com, a website he founded years ago, deep dives into prospect rankings. Um, there's some cool features on there available to you if you subscribe for uh, with some trade potential trade targets. That's been a lot of fun to check out. And then uh, through, I got update that tonight. Through, getting updated tonight. And you, if you want to access to there, that people are going to want to see. Yep. Uh, it's, so now I got to go back there again. If you want to access that, <laughs> go to Patreon. It's a uh, there's a couple different subscription tiers uh, for the podcast baseball things that also give you access to those tools. Uh, on the website. It's well worth it. It's reasonable. It's the save yourself, buy one less latte a month, and uh, you can listen to the best baseball podcast out there. Thanks for joining me again, Jason. Anytime, Dan. Appreciate it. All right, man. We'll talk again soon. Hey, thanks, man. See you. All right. That's going to do it for episode 20. Thanks again to Jason Churchill of Baseball Things and Prospect Insider for joining me here on the Emerald City Sportscast. Uh, I cannot, again, Encourage you highly enough to go check out his stuff. Also on Twitter, um, at Prospect Insider, Jason A. Churchill. Check it out. Uh, That's going to do it for me this week. Coming up on Monday, the next time you hear me, I will be joined by Bill Alfstad, by Keith Myers, by Corbin Smith, as we basically merge our podcast into a big three-hour marathon Live Seahawks training camp preview at Aussie's Tavern, 105 West Mercer in Seattle, Monday. Again, the scheduled recording time will be from about 3 o'clock to 6 o'clock. That's during happy hour. Come down and have great bar food, great burgers. They have an outstanding local beer selection. Come have a drink with us before the game, before the game, before the podcast. Say hi. There's a chance to win some cool stuff. My Seahawk preseason tickets against the Chargers. Some Seahawks gift cards, $200 gift certificate to El Gaucho must be present to win. We're going to take questions. We're going to break down everything you need to know for the Seahawks as they head into training camp at the end of next week. That's Monday at Aussies. It will be live streamed, so look for it on Twitter, at Seahawks Forever. Look for it on the Emerald City Sportscast YouTube page. If you follow, if you're friends with me on Facebook, you'll see it on that page. We're going to have a lot of fun. So tell your friends, show up. We'd love to see you there. And until then, have a great weekend. Thanks for listening.